Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, this is Colonel Joe Kettinger, and I'm talking today with Dr. Sky from the uh, teentalknetwork.com. And I'm talking about my high-altitude parachute work that I did uh, back in 59 and 60. I'm talking, talking uh, with Dr. Sky about my uh, combat experience and uh, just aviation in general. Welcome to the Dr. Sky Show, heard proudly here on the Teen Talk Network radio network, teentalknetwork.com, and our flagship radio station, KFNX in Phoenix, Arizona. That is News Talk 1100, the 50,000-watt powerhouse of the desert southwest. The Dr. Sky Show concerns itself with subject matter from the realms of astronomy, space, aviation, and weather. We have a return guest here on the Dr. Sky Show and Teen Talk Network. We're proud to announce the arrival and return of retired Air Force Colonel Joe Kittinger. Joe, welcome to the program. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me back on your show. Well, thank you very much. And always, it's a privilege and honor to speak to someone who's talked the talk and then walked it, and certainly the amazing things that you've done in service of our country. But, Joe, uh, as we said, welcome back. We'd like to just get you to start off for maybe some people that are new to hearing your uh, voice here on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got started in the United States military. Well, I I always wanted to be an aviator. My earliest uh, recollection was uh, building airplanes and thinking about flying airplanes. and It was my goal that I set early on in my life, and uh, I worked diligently toward that, and that was... That was my field of dreams, was sitting there thinking about uh, flying airplanes. And uh, one day my father reminded me, he said, son, you can dream all you want to, but you've got to work hard to accomplish what you want. And that's a good lesson, I think, today, that, you know, you can dream, but uh, the way you get success is hard work. That's absolutely right. And, again, welcoming you back to TeenTuckNetwork.com here on the Dr. Sky Show. Officially, as I quote from your bio, you entered the military service back in March of 1949 as an aviation cadet. And then we understand as you were commissioned as a second lieutenant, you spent some time out in that beautiful part of the southwest known as Las Vegas, correct? Yes, that's where I flew the P-51 and got my wings, and then I went from there to Germany. I see. And also, tell us a little bit more, the P-51, for maybe some of the younger listeners on the show. This is one of America's great uh, propeller aircraft of what, World War II vintage and the Korean War? Yes, uh, it was a fabulous airplane. Dr. Sky. It was it was a fabulous airplane. It had a great big uh, twelve cylinder inline engine, and you could always tell a P fifty one flying overhead because it had a very distinctive sound. That engine just purred, and you could you could wherever I am, if I hear a P fifty one in the sky, I know it's a fifty one because it has such a distinctive sound to it. And, and it was a fabulous airplane to fly, just a, just a ball to fly. Well, many folks may not know this, but we see these type aircraft in regular competition at places like, uh, am I correct, the Reno Air Races, among other places. Yes, they, they're always at Reno, and uh, they, uh, they, they're always in the competition somewhere. They, if they're not winning, they're very close to it. Well, that's great stuff, and we've seen P-51s out here in Arizona where our program hails from. I'm sure you're familiar with an organization known as the Commemorative Air Force, and they yes, have a number of these airplanes of course, on the very plane. famous organization. Wonderful people there. As we move on, I was wondering if you could just talk to us about children and education, because, Colonel, as you know, you're inspiring right now many, many young minds out there to go into the discipline of either the military or to become a pilot. And what would you tell them current in our second interview about how they can get involved in aerospace? Well, aerospace, first of all, uh, Dr. Sky, is a wonderful profession. Um, I, I've been flying airplanes now for over 52 years, and I, I love it. Uh, it it's, it's, it's a wonderful profession and made up of folks that are, uh, that are people that you really like to be associated with. The, the key to it is to uh, 
do your study, get get your degree if you can, um, uh, dedicate yourself to to being the best that you can be, and th- that's the secret to success in any event, in any event, in any profession. It's always do the best you can do and be the best that you can. And uh, I just uh, I thoroughly enjoy the Air Force. Um, it was, uh, but you know, it, not everybody can be an aviator. Uh, it takes uh, lots of folks to to make airplanes fly. It takes crew chiefs and it takes supply people. I mean, you know, the the, the glamour part is a is a flying of the airplane, but it takes twice as many people to get the airplanes in the sky and to keep them there. So there's a great professions also, in the in the mechanics and in the supply and the administration in aviation. So. Well, that's great advice. And a recent interview that I had here on Teen Talk Network uh, with the Doctor Sky Show was. One of the majors who's involved in junior ROTC, and I think that's awesome, uh, Colonel Joe, that there's uh, so many young people in the high school level now that are getting exposure to a potential military career in the Air Force or learning all about aviation, as you speak so well of. Yes, that, that CAP program is a wonderful program, and that's an entry into aviation that uh, that's available for all uh, people in high school. And that's a great way to, to get a, a leg up on, on the profession. Let's move, if we can, to your time that you spent out at that uh, very interesting place on the map, uh, southern New Mexico, Holloman Air Force Base, White Sands area of New Mexico. And I understand that throughout your time there, you had an affiliation with a fantastic individual, Dr. John Stapp, who also wrote, as you know, and I'd like you to explain a little more, about the rocket sled test that led up to what we know today as jet fighters. Well, Dr. Stapp was a visionary. Uh, he was a man that knew the way that the Air Force should be going on research in regards to protecting of people for escape high altitude from aircraft. He also knew we were going to go into space, and he was responsible for some of the very initial work that we did on, on space research. For example, the first zero-gravity experiments in this country was done as a result of Dr. Stapp right there at Holloman Air Force Base. He was just a, he was a fabulous man and a great visionary and that uh, contributed so much to our country and so much to our Air Force. The, uh, I'll give you one quick dialogue here, uh, Dr. Skye. Sure. Um, he was stationed at, uh, originally at Edwards Air Force Base and the Air Force were losing more people to car accidents. Uh, they were losing more people to crashes in cars than we were in airplanes. So Dr. Stepp started a program on crash protection in vehicles, and he was one of the very first people who came up with research on lap belts, safety belts, and shoulder harnesses. He was really the originator in this country on the research to start that aspect of protection. Of course, there's been probably a million people saved in vehicles as a result of what Dr. Stepp did. And an association with that was deceleration, rapid deceleration. And he did this by a series of experiments on 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 sleds, rocket propelled sleds, and uh, that's where I first met him because I I made the aerial photographs of him when he made his sled run to 714 miles an hour. That's an incredible speed, and if I'm correct, there's a photograph of you flying over him at the same time his rocket sled is what almost at full power, uh, as if there was some kind of mythological or race going on. Is that so uh, accurate? That, that's very accurate, but, it, but the race I, I couldn't do very good. He could go he could go faster than I could. Uh, my airplane uh, was limited to about 650, uh, 550, and he was doing over 600 miles an hour. Well, the interesting part about this, Colonel, is as you were telling us that they did these in, interesting deceleration tests. So what happens? He's at max speed, and then he reduces it down to zero in a very short matter of time, correct? Oh, just a few, uh, just a few uh, feet, really. He, he he went from zero to thir- uh, 614 miles an hour and stopped in less than 3,500 feet from the That's total incredible. the total experiment. He pulled minus 41 G's, Doctor Sky, which was considered the physiological limit to deceleration. Um, it, and it's 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 still a milestone today that uh, is phenomenal when you think about minus 41 G's. Well, that's it's incredible. like running into a brick wall. It's at, you know, 100 miles an hour. Absolutely. And as you say, I understand he suffered some temporary, which he may not have known it was temporary, damage to the blood vessels of his eyes, if I'm correct. He certainly did. He was, uh, he, he looked like he was, he was just beat up. Uh, and that's the reason why I always said he was the bravest man that I ever met, uh, because he knew physiologically everything was going to happen to him. 
He knew the risk he was taking, but he did it because science dictated it. He needed this information. The Air Force needed this information. And he's the bravest man that I ever met uh, in my life. And I've known some great uh, aviators and some very uh, brave men, but he by far is the bravest man that I ever met. If you're just joining us, we're having an exclusive interview today, proudly so, with the retired Air Force Colonel Joe Kittinger, Jr., who's talking to us about not only his career in the military and about some fascinating things, ladies and gentlemen, that will just blow your mind, but also recollecting some of the good reasons why young people who listen to TeenTalkNetwork.com should, of course, look at the U.S. military as a proud and rightful career. And also we're heard here on KFNX, that is News Talk 1100, the 50,000-watt powerhouse of the desert southwest. Colonel Kittinger, if you could just tell us, you also have a great fascination and also part of U.S. history in man ballooning. And if you could just tell us what got you involved in that, say, back in the 1950s. Well, there was research that needed to be done that Dr. Stapp had uh, identified, and the only way we could do it was go up in a balloon. There was no aircraft that could take us up there. There was no spacecraft that could take us up there. And the only way we could get those high altitudes was a balloon vehicle. And I did actually five high-altitude balloon flights. From The lowest was 74,000 feet, and the highest was 103,000 feet. And we, it, it was really, if we'd had an airplane, it had been much simpler, but we didn't have it, so we had to use balloon vehicles. I made one flight in 1957 in a pressurized gondola to look at how to uh, do a space flight, uh, how to the, the uh, oxygen composition, the uh, physiological monitoring uh, devices, uh, how to train, how to select astronauts. All of these were things that we did back in 1957 uh, using balloon vehicles at high altitude. And then I made three high altitude parachute jumps, and once again this was to designed to uh, investigate uh, protection of man in the space environment and how to provide a means of escape from very high altitude. Once again, uh, research objectives that Dr. Stapp identified. And we once again, we used balloons. And then my final balloon flight was in 1962 with an astronomer and a telescope and went above the Earth's atmosphere and looked at stars and planets without the... Uh, the turbulence and the dust and haze of our atmosphere. And that flight is, of course, the December 13, 14, 1962 flight with astronomer William White of uh, China Lake, California, if I'm correct. Yes, sir, and you've done your homework, Dr. Skye. Well, we certainly like to keep uh, on the cutting edge of this, and again, I'm looking a bit briefly, that is, excuse me, about your background, but uh, it's a privilege and honor here to have our very special guest here on TeamTalkNetwork.com. That's retired Air Force Colonel Joe Kittinger, who's going to tell us, Joe Kittinger Jr., who's going to tell us more about a most amazing flight that he made back on the historic date of August the 16th, 1960. And I say, take it away, Colonel, because this story, ladies and gentlemen, about what you're about to hear is most amazing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, as I pointed out, Dr. Stapp uh, uh, was responsible for our programs, and we we had never put a man in space before. Uh, we knew we were going to go into space, and the man had to get outside of the spacecraft, and the man would have work to do outside the spacecraft, and we had never done it. We had never actually done it except in an altitude chamber. And by the same token, we were having difficulties on providing means of escape from very high altitudes. And so both of these are objectives. First of all, how to protect a man in a space environment, and then second of all, how to provide a means of escape from very high altitudes. Well, I made a hundred flights in altitude chambers, um, I, where I had a w- great team of, of uh, civilians and, and military and, and, and enlisted personnel and officers, and we worked for about a year and a half uh, putting this program together and uh, testing the equipment. And uh, I made three, actually, I made three parachute jumps. One was in November of 1959, one was in December of 1959, and then in in, uh, August of 1960, some 44 years ago. Now, it's important for me to tell you that 
we didn't do this to set records. We did this to gather information. We we didn't do it to to set uh, a new record. We did it to gather information. And uh, I made this jump uh, on the 16th of August. It took about an hour and a half to get up there. I was in an open gondola, uh, and and as I passed through 40,000 feet, I detected that my pressure suit glove in my right hand was not working, but I didn't tell the people on the ground because I knew that they would probably have to cancel out the uh, test if I told them I had this problem. So, so you went ahead to continue the mission? So I didn't share this problem with them because I, I, I felt it was very important that we get the test done. It took about an hour and a half to get up to altitude of 103,000 feet, uh, and once I got there, I drifted for about 11 minutes while the gondola got in the exact spot for the jump. And then they said, well, you're right over the position. I had 46 items to do on my checklist to get before I could separate from the gondola. I started my checklist. I got everything completed. I stood up. I said a silent prayer. I pushed, pushed the final button to start the cameras working, and I jumped. And uh, as I jumped, I rolled over my back, and I looked up, and the balloon was shooting into space like a rocket. And all I said, gosh, I can't believe this. And all of a sudden I realized that the balloon was standing still, and I was going down at a fantastic rate of speed. I had about, about 90,000 feet, I reached 714 miles an hour. Incredible. Which is supersonic. But the pressure there, of course, is very low. It's about 5 millimeters of pressure, which is almost a complete vacuum. So you're going extremely fast, true airspeed. But from then on, as the density of the air increases, you slow down. So from 90,000 feet on, I kept slowing down constantly, all the way down, as the density of the, of the atmosphere increased. And after 4 minutes and 36 seconds, uh, the parachute opened, and uh, I was elated because we had uh, demonstrated that uh, we could provide a means of escape. And the, the great thing, Dr. Sky, is that today that the escape systems that are used today in aircraft are the result of the work that we did back in 1960. The drag formulas used today, the technique of escape that we use is still being used today, not only by our Air Force, but also the Russian Air Force has exactly the same system that we devised back some 44 years ago. Well, Colonel, this is an amazing story as we're listening to this live here on TeamTalkNetwork.com to tape. But I want to mention something, Colonel, or ask you, I should say. What is, from a human side, what's this feeling like to be the only person to date who's jumped not only from that record altitude, but what's it simply like when you take that leap of faith, as we call it, as you call it, uh, out of the gondola? What's it feel like to go supersonic without the aid of an aircraft? Well, I'll, it was, of course, I, I didn't detect it. It, was, it happened so insidiously that I could not detect it myself. Uh, the... Uh, the uh, uh, density there is such, and this, my true velocity was such that I didn't detect it. But I knew I was going fast. There was no doubt about that because I could see that balloon firing into space. But otherwise, you would have no way of knowing how fast you're going because there's no, there's no visual reference. I had an altimeter and a stopwatch, and I had a great interest in that. And I kept watching the, my altimeter and stopwatch all the way down. Uh, because I was monitoring my progress as I was descending. And, of course, the further I fell, the safer it was because uh, space is very hostile. Without a pressure suit, you die very quickly, and uh, so your, your whole life is dependent upon that pressure suit working. So as you're descending, do you hear anything during this phase, or is it pretty no, much you're, a silent you, you, moment? See, you've got a helmet on, right? and uh, you're, uh, you're breathing in this helmet, and... Uh, Actually, you're, you you can't hear a thing except your own breath uh, in the helmet. Now, there are people that have asked this question, and we need to clarify this. Uh, some have stated, well, if he went supersonic, why didn't he burn up? And I think the simple answer is what? The atmosphere is so thin at that height that it's not enough to set you ablaze, correct? Well, no. Really, the real thing is, is the speed. You have to be doing a Mach 3 before you start getting a problem with heat. And I was at Mach 1. Heat, heat doesn't get to be an effort. Above Mach 2, uh, you, you'd start getting some, some heat problems, but I was not, I was halfway there. So I had no problem with the heat. As a matter of fact, it was 110 degrees below zero up there. It was pretty cold up there. 
That's very cold indeed. And I wanted to qualify this for the listening audience here on Team Talk Network and News Talk 1100 here in Phoenix. When you're falling like this, it should be stated that you had a free fall jump of about how long before your first chute opened? Well, actually, um, the, the main chute did not open until about 14,000 feet. So, uh, you know, I was, I was very busy. You know, people have asked me, you know, what were you thinking about? Well, I was there as a test pilot. I was there to gather information, and I was constantly talking into my interphone. I didn't have a radio or anything to talk to the ground, but I had an intercom, a little uh, uh, tape recorder, and I was constantly describing how my parachute was working, how the stabilization was doing, how uh, just what was happening. So I was extremely busy all the way down. That's amazing stuff, and you were awarded, as the story continues, the C.B. Harmon Trophy, presented to you directly by President Eisenhower in 1960, and, of course, the Distinguished Flying Cross and other more memorable awards that continue. This is amazing, Colonel. And, you know, folks, it's an honor to be able to speak to somebody who's done something like this because the average parachute jump, if you could tell us this, if a person's going to go out and want to learn how to do this as a civilian, the average jump is about what height and about how long does the person free fall? Well, of course, it, it, the longer they've jumped, the longer they free fall. But when they first start off, they usually start off with a 10-second free fall, something like that. Um, the, 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 uh, the, the techniques they use today are very safe. They have very good parachutes, uh, good instructions. Uh, the, the FAA closely watches the, the instruction that they give. And it, it's, it's really a, a pretty doggone safe uh, environment if you go to a good school to learn how to parachute jump. And by the way, when I made my jump, um, People think, well, you know, I must have had thousands of parachute jumps when I made this one. But, no, I only had, that was my 33rd jump. And the reason was, was I was there to test equipment for astronauts and pilots. And astronauts and pilots are not trained parachutists. They're not skydivers. So I was there with a minimum amount of, of parachute jumps on purpose to, to be sure that what I was gathering would be applicable to pilots and astronauts. Well, it's interesting to note, for those that are interested in the science of uh, space science here, that your jump on that date in August of 1960 predates, if I'm correct, the Alan Shepard launch of the first suborbital flight around the, uh, into space, correct? Oh, yes. Yes, quite a bit. Uh, so, uh, I, I, actually, I was the first man in the space. Um, I wasn't, it wasn't orbital space, but I was the first man in space. Space starts, really, at about 62,000 feet for the man. Because above 62,000 feet, that's where blood boils. And without a pressure suit, you cannot live. So for, for, for space, it starts at 62,000 feet. Well, Colonel, we want to salute your service to the United States military. And as the story goes on, we'd love to hear your comment about the rest of your career, a very important career that everybody needs to know about. You were also involved as the commander of a very famous uh, aircraft squadron known as the 555th Triple Nickel which I know from Arizona here was one of the first to also have the F-15 at Luke Air Force Base. Tell us all about the, the, the Triple Nickel. Well, it was a great squadron, and you're right. They had the first F-15s, and they, they came there from Clark, and they were uh, they were the first unit to have F-15s to, and checked out all the F-15 pilots in the Air Force. The uh, Triple Nickel, we shot down more MiGs than any other squadron there was in, uh, in Vietnam, Navy or Air Force. We had a great bunch of, of warriors um, that uh, did a, a, a very good job, and I was a proud commander of that organization for uh, a year before I got shot down. But it was a great group of people, and they're still great. Right now they're over in Aviano flying F-16s, and uh, they're still a great organization. We also need to say, uh, as a member of the Armed Forces, you did serve your time not only with the United States military, but you were held captive for some 11 months when you were shot down on May 11, 1972. Excuse me. And among the other folks that I'm sure you know very well, similar stories like Senator John McCain and also Admiral Stockdale. And again, uh, sir, we just want to salute your service to the United States military. I actually had three tours in Vietnam, um, I, and I was there uh, from 63, 64, 66, 67, and 71, 72, and. Uh, I, I had over uh, a thousand hours of combat, 483 combat sorties, 
and I, you know, I really believed in what we were doing. We certainly salute you as anyone who was held captive, and none of us understand what one goes through. And obviously, 11 months, I don't know how I would manage the time, Colonel, uh, being kept away from family and my military comrades. Uh, again, we salute you for all the service that you've given to this great nation. But back to the subject matter of your love of ballooning in the time we have allotted today. Another amazing historic milestone is achieved in September of 1984. Colonel, tell us about this wonderful opportunity to fly solo across the Atlantic. Well, now, Dr. Scott, that was, 10, that was 20 years ago. 20 years ago the next month. I made the first solo balloon flight across the Atlantic Ocean. It had never been done before. We did it just for an adventure. We did it just because it had never been done before. We did it to have a good time, and we did exactly that. I had a great group of people that were my sponsors, and uh, we had an awful lot of fun doing it. Uh, it it uh, flew for three and a half days, took off from Maine and landed in Italy, and it was just a blast. Uh, I also, of course, was in uh, the Gordon Bennett balloon races, and uh, next month in, uh, in Albuquerque, I'm going to be flying another gas balloon uh, in a race from Albuquerque on the Saturday, the 2nd of October. Well, that's always a mecca, what, for the balloon fans, uh, the amateurs, and the folks that uh, not are just amateurs, but the real diehards of the sport of aerial ballooning. And this is what, a major event that occurs in October every year in Albuquerque, correct? Yes, sir, uh, every year. I guess the 26th anniversary, of my death, it's been happening for a long time. But it's a fantastic ceremony. Uh, they'll have a thousand um, balloons there that will take off uh, at, at, at for various flights. But the balloons that I'm flying in are gas balloons, and there, there'll be about 20 of those gas balloons in the race. Not hot air balloons. Right? They're not hot air balloons. This is gas using helium gas. Helium uh, gas. Interesting. Now, on this flight with Rosie O'Grady across the Atlantic, you're up 10,000 to 17,000 feet. What's that experience like? Because obviously you need oxygen at certain levels, but what do you see? Do you see airliners passing by? Not close, of course, but what's the experience like at that height? Well, the, actually, the highest altitude I got was about uh, 22,000 feet, and the airliners are up at 30 to, to 40,000 feet, so I never saw any airliners. I did get boomed twice by the Concorde. Oh. It scared the daylights out of me because... <laughs> That must have been an experience. That was quite an experience, and of course, I had no idea it was going to happen. And first time it happened, uh, it just scared the daylights out of me. But uh, after that, then I realized what it was. It didn't bother me so much the next time. But the air, the uh, airliners are much higher than than I was uh, in my flight. And of course, I, I was on oxygen uh, a great deal of the time. Uh, in the three and a half days, I slept two and a half hours. I would sleep ten minutes at a time, and. Uh, it was a, it was a, it was a exciting, uh, it was an exciting flight. It had never been done before, and we we wanted to do something that was uh, unique, and it, this was a unique event. I'm not as current as you are in the history of uh, man ballooning, but am I correct that Albuquerque residents uh, also Max, uh, I'm trying to think, Bruce, Ben Abruzzo and Maxie Anderson were also involved in a cross in a transatlantic flight too. They made the first flight with three man crew. Maxie Anderson and Ben Abruzzo. They made that flight uh, in uh, 1978, and uh, they they took off from Maine and landed in uh, France. Well, it's been a pleasure, Colonel. Uh, I wish we had more time here on the show today, but in closing, if you could, for about a minute, could you tell us what's new with uh, Colonel Kittinger and tell us what some of the activities you're involved in, and how can people get in touch with you if they'd like to learn more about what you've done? Well, first of all, let me tell you, there's a pretty good book called uh, The Free Astronauts, written by Craig Ryan, which uh, d describes a lot of the research that we did back in those days. And folks are interested in, in, in that era and that research we did. That book is a real good book, and it's on Amazon.com, and I'm sure you can get it at your bookstore. Uh, the sky is still my office. Um, I've, I still fly balloons. I still fly airplanes. And uh, I still have the, the love of aviation I've always had, and I'm going to keep flying as long as I possibly can because I really love it, and I, I love the people that are associated with it, and it's just an awful lot of fun. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've heard it from the man himself. We conclude our interview proudly and thank him ahead of time, Colonel Joe Kittinger, retired uh, Air Force colonel, 
and we want to thank him for being part of our program today here on teentalknetwork.com and our flagship radio station, News Talk 1100, that is KFNX, the 50,000-watt powerhouse of the desert southwest. Colonel, I look forward to staying in touch with you, and if by chance I can make another trip out to the Florida area, I'd love, with your permission, to be able to meet you face-to-face. Just give me a call anytime. Oh, thank you, sir. And that concludes our program today. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Sky Show, heard each week, as you know, on teentalknetwork.com and News Talk 1100, KFNX in Phoenix. From Dr. Sky to all of you, always keep your eyes to the skies. Thank you, Colonel. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Steve Cates, Dr. Sky, once again here on teentalknetwork.com where we bring you from the world of aviation, astronomy, aerospace, and, of course, the subject science of weather, newsbreakers, those that make news and have made news in these wonderful sciences. And today's program, we have our very special guest, United States Air Force retired Colonel Joseph Kittinger, Jr., who, as we discuss his background here on TeenTalkNetwork.com, I'm sure everyone listening will be fascinated about the stories of what Colonel Kittinger will tell us. Colonel Kittinger, welcome to TeenTalkNetwork.com. Well, uh, thanks, Steve. I'm delighted to be invited to be on the program. Well, thanks so much for uh, joining us today. One of the most amazing things, and I'm sure a lot of students out there when they study aviation, your name, of course, will come up in the wonderful world of aviation because of many things that you've done in your career. But before we get into that, if you'd be kind enough to explain to us how you got started with the Air Force and aviation, and we'll start from there. Well, Steve, uh, as a small boy, I I just I had a dream that I wanted to be an aviator. Uh, that was my first wish. That was my first love. That was my field of dreams. Uh, that was what that was what I was thinking about. And and one day my father took me aside and said, Joe, he said, you know, uh, uh, you, you can you can always reach your dreams, but you got to work for it. He said, you got to study harder. I said, well, I, Father, I thought if I just had a dream, it would happen. And my father said, no, you have to work hard for it. And uh, that changed my whole philosophy because all of a sudden I, st- I, st- I started applying myself in school where I, I figured if I could dream about something and, and, and fantasize about it, it would happen. But it's not, life's not like that way. If you want something really hard, you've got to work hard for it. And and that that's that's a lesson I think that everyone should should uh, address because uh, the, I've never met a, a successful person yet, Steve, that 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 was not a, a person that worked hard. Uh, there's no such thing as a free gift in life. It, it requires a, a lot of hard effort and, and work on everyone's part. And then you can succeed. But to just sit there and dream about it, nothing's going to happen. You're absolutely right, Colonel Joe. And from your start in uh, going to school, uh, studying aviation, and then going into the Air Force, what I find most fascinating uh, with that good advice is that you did do something about that. And if you'd tell us uh, briefly uh, about your Air Force career and uh, how you actually uh, got started there. And then when you moved on to the program that we'd like to discuss is the focus of the uh, program today, uh, manned man-high ballooning, and the wonderful journey that you're going to tell us about, about some incredible feat that has yet to be duplicated uh, today, a jump from some 102,800 feet above the earth, an incredible story that you're about to tell us. Well, uh, I went to the University of Florida, and uh, and as soon as I had uh, sufficient uh, educational background to, uh, to join the Air Force, I did. And I uh, went to pilot training out in uh, Texas. And after uh, years of intense training, uh, I fi- realized my dream of, of being a fighter pilot. And uh, that was one of the happiest days of my life when I finally realized my dream that I'd worked uh, my whole life for. Um, I then went uh, 
into a, uh, a fighter organization uh, in, in Germany. I was stationed in Germany, uh, and uh, for uh, almost uh, well for three years uh, during the Korean War, I, I was uh, stationed in Germany, which uh, and I, I didn't have an opportunity to serve in, in that uh, conflict. Right. But uh, when I uh, left that assignment, I went to the Air Research and Development Command. And uh, where I volunteered to go there, and I was an experimental test pilot in the fighter test business, and uh, that was uh, that was an awful lot of fun. Uh, I, I just there was nothing but uh, enjoyment for me to fly all these different wonderful airplanes and at, and 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 be able to feel like we we're I was contributing something to my country, but at the same time having just an absolute blast flying all these wonderful, beautiful uh, jet fighter aircraft. Uh, that the Air Force had at the time. Um, and as a result of that uh, program, uh, Steve, I found out about the Air Force entering into a program, uh, research program for the for the coming space age. And the program was uh, called uh, Man High. Now, in those days, uh, we had not gone into space. Uh, it, was a, it was a dream that a few, just a few people had. And I worked for one of those men, Dr. John Paul Stapp. He, he was the the real visionary uh, in the Air Force uh, in regards to uh, the Air Force and our country going into space. And this program that he started, uh, Man High, was to gather information about how we're going to take care of and, and, and putting a man into a space environment, what what requirements will, be, will there be for training and selection and life support equipment and communications and all of the different facets of going into space uh, we, we had little or no knowledge, and, and Dr. Stapp's program was to try to acquire that knowledge. I understand, if I'm correct, that you were a participant in the what we would call the rocket sled testing in New Mexico. Is that also part of what Dr. Stapp was uh, working on? Well, of course, Dr. Stapp, uh, he, he was such a, a visionary. Uh, just to give you an idea, back in the early, in the 40s, uh, the Air Force was losing more people to automobile crashes and there were airplane crashes. And Dr. Stapp, uh, being a doctor, uh, started a series of research programs uh, using uh, dummies and so forth, automobiles, to come up with a crash protection program for cars. Hmm. As a matter of fact, he was one of the first people in our country that came up with the idea of safety belts. And, and the, of all the things that Dr. Stapp did, I would say that his uh, research work that he did on safety belts uh, it was probably the, the most profound, and it, he's little—he's given little recognition for this. But uh, anyway, it was—it was an Air Force program that he had, and he used rocket sleds to acquire some of this data. And he rode the rocket sled, and then in 1955 he made a rocket sled run to over 613 miles an hour, and he pulled minus 41 G's when he crashed into the barrier at the end. He, he established a limit to, to human physiological uh, deceleration in, in crashes and high-speed ejections. And to your knowledge, that hasn't been duplicated, I would imagine. That's no, no, and I doubt if it will, Steve, because he came very close to being killed in that experiment. Well, so I read um, about this in the uh, book that, of course, is the pre-astronauts, which is written about yourself and all about the lovely uh, experiences and the mind-boggling experiences uh, of the 1950s and 60s. But when we see these uh, pictures, I mean, maybe you could explain to us, Colonel Joe, what the rocket sled is really all about. I think people might have an idea about this, but maybe some students are kind of curious what that is. Well, when a, when a person uh, crashes into, a, into an immovable object, there is a tremendous deceleration associated with that. To duplicate this, uh, Dr. Stapp used a rocket sled. And this sled actually was a very fast rocket-propelled sled with a booster on it that got up to very high speeds and then stopped in a very short distance. Uh, during this stopping, the, the subject, Dr. Stapp, was subjected to these tremendous deceleration forces, just like if he had, cra had made a car crash or he had ejected from a very high-speed aircraft. Uh, and uh, it, the, the forces on the body were, were just tremendous, and uh, he, was, he was very fortunate that he lived through it. But the fantastic thing about Dr. Stapp was was that he knew what was going to happen to him. He knew the physical beating that he was going to take. 
but he felt that the, that it was so important that we gather this knowledge that he subjected himself to to these uh, these tremendous forces. He's a brave, the bravest man I've ever met in my life was Dr. John Paul Stapp because he knew exactly what was going to happen to him, but he took that chance knowing that we needed this information for not only for our space program and protection for pilots ejecting by the aircraft, but for Christ's protection also. Well, Colonel Joe, it's great that uh, we're talking about these subjects because I think people like Dr. Stamp, uh, we don't see a lot of recognition in the modern world today about the pioneers. And once again, it's uh, we're very fortunate to have you explaining this wonderful story. But to transition on to your career, back in 1957, it appears that you become involved in a project called Project Manhigh, which are what? Balloon flights where you're sitting in some sort of a gondola to go up to the higher levels of the atmosphere. Is that correct? Yes, Steve. But first of all, you say, well, why does you use a balloon? Well, because there wasn't any aircraft that would get up there. There wasn't any spacecraft that would get up there. So the only way that we could gather this data was to use man's oldest aerial vehicle, which which was a balloon vehicle. Uh, the balloon really, vehicle really complicated the matter because... Uh, if we'd had an aircraft we could have gotten up there to do this experimentation with, it would have been much simpler, much easier. But but the balloon was the only vehicle that we had in those days to get to these very high altitudes to, to do these types of uh, scientific uh, investigations. On your first flight, how did it feel for you to be encased in this, I imagine, a small gondola? And you're basically only contact with the ground is, of course, by radio. But what's that feeling like, and how long does it take to ascend to these kind of altitudes? Well, first of all, uh, Steve, uh, this gondola was four foot, uh, actually three feet across and seven feet high. It was really smaller than a phone booth. And, of course, today, young kids don't know what a phone booth is. But uh, <laughs> back in my day, uh, they were uh, a small uh, building that you'd go into to, uh, to make a telephone call. But anyway, it was very small. It was small for a reason. It was small because we knew when we went into space that the man was going to be in a very small, confined uh, uh, cockpit or capsule, and we wanted to uh, design uh, systems that would work in a small, confined area, and we wanted a man to be in a small, confined area. And uh, when I made that first flight, uh, which was in June of 1957, no man had ever been aloft uh, above the Earth's atmosphere for a prolonged period of time like I was going to be. Uh, I was a trained fighter pilot. I was an experimental fighter pilot. Uh, I was a trained parachutist. Uh, I was a research engineer. And I was there uh, in that capacity as a research engineer to gather the data that we needed uh, in preparation for the space program. And what's fascinating, Colonel, is that as many people listening probably do know, and if they don't, this is before the launch of Sputnik and also before the launch of the first supposed human in space, uh, Yuri Gagarin. Oh, yes, this was a, uh, two years, uh, actually three years before any uh, other uh, manned space program. Um, and we were there because we knew that, well, Dr. Stapp was a proponent of this. Dr. Stapp knew we were going into space. He was one of the few people that really had faith that we were going into space. And he, need, he knew that we needed this information to prepare us for that step. The information that we gathered in our research programs assisted us, our our nation in getting into space. We, we we didn't we didn't make it happen, but we we learned lessons and we learned we gathered data that helped us in the final analyses to to uh, uh, go into space in a safe manner. And for attaining these altitude high projects, uh, of course, with Project Manhigh, you're awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross for doing this over what a period of a few flights. Yes, I was I was awarded uh, the Distinguished Flying Cross for for this program. Uh, which I was certainly uh, honored by that. And, uh, and then I left and went on to uh, another program, uh, uh, which was uh, Project Excelsior, uh, whereas the first flight was uh, to how to protect a man in a space environment, how to have communications and physiological monitoring, and how to train an astronaut, how to select an astronaut, the purpose of Excelsior was to gather information about how to protect a man in a space environment in a pressure suit and how to provide a means of emergency escape from very high altitude. And on this program, I went up to uh, altitude of, uh, I actually made three parachute jumps. Uh, ever, ever higher, one from 76,000, one from 75,000, and the third one from 103,000 feet. 
Now, we weren't there to set records. Uh, we were there to gather data, to gather information that, that we needed for our space program. But on the date of August 16, 1960, this 102,800-foot-high attempt, uh, again, the world record, I believe, you do something very special here, and if you'd be kind enough to tell us, you're up there, you're then taping, taking this big leap of faith, as you call it, if you could describe to everybody listening to me. Now, folks, this is what I think one of the most amazing stories in here. Here is a person, as a pre-astronaut, stepping out of a balloon at the outer edges of the atmosphere, and let me not take the thunder away, Colonel Joe. Tell us exactly what happened in those moments when you reached the altitude and were prepared to make this historic jump. Well, uh, it, first of all, it took about an hour and a half to get up there. The gondola was not pressurized. It was an open gondola with a door where I could look out and, and see the earth beneath me as I went aloft. Uh, when I got to 103,000 feet, that was above 99% uh, of the Earth's atmosphere. Uh, the pressure at sea level is about 720 millimeters. The pressure at 103,000 feet is 5 millimeters. It's almost a vacuum. It, it is very close to be uh, the same environment that's on the moon. Of course, the moon is zero, right. but we're only 5 millimeters. So we were close to an uh, atmosphere, to a condition that was similar to being in the, on the, walking on the moon. Um, I, uh, I had 46 different items I had to go through uh, my checklist when I got to altitude prior to jumping. I drifted for about 11 minutes as I drifted over the exact jump point. I went through my, completed my checklist. I disconnected all my equipment. I stood up. I said a solemn prayer. I said, Lord, take care of me now. And I jumped out the door. Amazing. Um, I rolled over on my back and I thought that uh, I was amazed because I saw this balloon and the gondola just roaring into space hmm. and I couldn't believe it how fast it was going and then I realized that I was the one that was going fast yes. the balloon was just sitting there and I was going down at a fantastic rate now because there's no atmosphere there uh, I reached very high speeds I was the first man to go supersonic without an airplane I was 714 miles an hour that's amazing at about 90,000 feet and from 90,000 feet down I kept slowing down as the atmosphere increased, the pressure increased, I kept constantly slowing down. And I free fell for four minutes and 36 seconds. And uh, my parachute opened at about uh, 14,000 feet. Uh, and about uh, 10 minutes later, I was I landed on the ground in uh, New Mexico. Colonel Joe, when you're going at the speed uh, approaching that of uh, sound and beyond, What's that feeling? What was that feeling like? I mean, do you feel anything? Did you break the sound barrier? Is there any sensation that you could tell us about? Or no, I, I was going extremely fast, Steve, and and I knew I was going fast because, <laughs> um, I we, you know we had we had dropped dummies from up there. We we had a doggone good idea what how fast I was going to be uh, during this descent. Um, the uh, I'm extremely busy. You can well imagine. I've got a lot of information I'm there to acquire. Yes. And I was very, very busy uh, gathering information, gathering data, talking into my tape recorder. Uh, getting that, I mean, I was there for a purpose, and it wasn't to enjoy the ride down. It was to gather information we needed for our space program. So I was very, very busy during the entire uh, jump. So throughout this whole flight and to the ground, uh, from the time you jumped to actually the time you're on the ground, about how long a period of time in total was that? Well, from the time I jumped, uh, Steve, it took uh, four and a half minutes to descend, and then another about 10 minutes. So it was about uh, almost 15 minutes from the time I jumped until the time I was on the ground. Well, that's the most amazing story, Colonel. I mean, this is uh, something, folks, as we were telling you before, is unheard of. I mean, you hear about people... Breaking the sound barrier, of course, uh, General Yeager, of course, with the uh, first at the time, of course, going faster than the speed of sound. But that's, of course, in a vehicle, an aircraft. So you're aircraft. Right. You're listening to someone who's been doing this by their sheer force of Earth's gravity tugging on their body, which is most amazing. But after this period of your life, uh, Colonel, you go back to the United States Air Force or in the United States Air Force and serve a period of time uh, as, what, the commander of the uh, Triple Nickel Fighter Squadron? Yes, well, uh, before I get there, let me let me sure. see that, that book that you mentioned, The Pre-Astronauts. Absolutely. I would recommend that, uh, that people that have an interest in the research we did back in those days, that they get a copy of that book and read it. It was uh, written by a fellow by the name of Craig Ryan, 
and it's an excellent uh, uh, article, uh, a book about the research that we did back in those that period of time. Uh, it's well done, and it's it's a good, very good documentation. Yes, and I recommend students that are listening to this program as a science project. You have a ready-made science project right here, surrounding the information you're hearing here with Colonel Joe Kittinger, and also the wonderful book about the pre-astronauts. Yes, that was that's a great reference book uh, of of that era. What what we did back in those days. Um, but before we leave my research endeavors, I yep. did another program, uh, Steve, that was called Stargazer. And this one was a, a, a project where I went up in a pressurized gondola with a telescope, with an astronomer, and looked at stars and planets above the Earth's atmosphere. This was a one flight we made, uh, in, in a, and it was the last scientific balloon flight ever made in the world. Uh, and this flight was made in 1962, and that was the very last high-altitude scientific research project ever done. So you and astronomer Bill White are sitting in this gondola that says for about 18 and a half hours, is that correct? Yes, 18 and a half hours. Uh, and uh, it was a very interesting uh, uh, experiment. And uh, it was it was something that, uh, that was, once again, a prelude to what was, was going to be done by uh, NASA in, in the following uh, years uh, with uh, putting telescopes into space. But this was with an astronomer there operating it. Yes, that's quite fascinating. Still the same tight quarters, I imagine, though. Well, this was this was fairly spacious. This was eight feet across. Uh, I mean, it was fairly comfortable. It yeah. was it was this was meant for working uh, a telescope, and uh, it was pretty comfortable environment uh, in that uh, that capsule. What do you learn primarily when you look at the differences in the atmosphere as the stars? Of course, many people think the stars twinkle, but the educated guess is that the atmosphere makes them twinkle. What, what did we really learn, though, specifically from that? It sounds fascinating. Well, uh, Steve, you hit the nail right on the head. Uh, the, the, the bane of astronomers is our own atmosphere. And it, it, the turbulence yes. causes uh, scintillate, light scintillation and stars twinkling. Uh, and if you get above the Earth's atmosphere, now you have a clear medium where you can study uh, stars and planets without the disturbance of our own atmosphere. And that's what an astronomer really likes to do. They like to get above the Earth's atmosphere and, and where they're not uh, handicapped by the Earth's atmosphere. And that's what we did in our project. Sounds most exciting. It was a very exciting program. Uh, it was uh, sponsored uh, jointly by the uh, Air Force and the the Navy and the National Geographic was also a part of it. And the Smithsonian Observatory, there was a very uh, intricate uh, program uh, with MIT involved. Uh, and uh, it was a very interesting program. But it was the last one that was ever done. The last manned flight ever done was that flight that we did in 1962. Why do you uh, think we don't see any more of these today? I'm just curious. Well, there's really no lobby associated with trying to do it. it it's a very cheap and economical way to do it, uh, Steve. Uh, the amount of money that, that a balloon project like this costs is nothing by comparison with what a rocket and, and the uh, intricate and expensive systems that are being used by NASA. It should be done. It's, it's, there's still a place today for this type of manned research that, that should be done, as a matter of fact. Colonel Joe, I saw here in Phoenix, where we originate uh, part of my Dr. Sky show uh, for TeenTalkNetwork.com, about uh, sometime either late last year or early this year, there was a series of balloons launched from New Mexico that were seen over the West. And some of these estimated altitudes were about 125,000 feet above the Earth, and they expanded upwards to about four or 500 feet. They were watched by people and reported as unidentified flying objects with the rising sun, and I followed the object across the skies, videotaped it extensively. It stayed in the skies almost all day. And from that altitude, that's pretty similar to about how high you are. Totally amazing to even be able to see that from the ground. And its alleged diameter on expansion was about five or 600 feet. And it looked like a little disk in the sky, way up there. Well, they're, very, they're 40 million cubic foot displacement. They're immense balloons, and they get to very high altitude. And there's still a lot of them flown uh, around the world. Unmanned flights are flown all over the world gathering data. It's a very good research tool that's being still used today all over the world, from the Arctic, the Antarctic, and from Australia, and from our own country. Uh, a lot, Most of them are launched from uh, Palestine, Texas, as a matter of fact. 
Yeah. But it's a very uh, uh, unique way to gather uh, research, and as you as you say, you can see them from the Earth. As, as, and you also point out about a lot of people report him as flying saucers because they are so uh, spectacular to see him up there. Well, we did a television uh, program as kind of a uh, special on this to let people know that there's some science behind the UFO in this case, and it's good to let people know about these kind of things when they want to know them in the sky. But in the time remaining, Colonel Joe, if you'd be kind enough to just tell us you transition after this wonderful career uh, in the uh, area of ballooning above the Earth's atmosphere, and then you served time in Vietnam, if you'd be kind enough to tell us about your involvement with the uh, Triple Nickel Tactical Fighter Squadron. Well, uh, Steve, actually, my career was uh, had two careers. First career was in research and development and uh, experimental test pilot, and then as a fighter pilot. Um, in 1963, I went to Vietnam for the first time, and uh, I, then I went again in 66, 67, and I was flying B-26s and A-26s. And then in 1971, I returned to uh, to Thailand and flying F-4 Phantoms, and I was a commander of the very famous uh, Triple Nickel Fighter Squadron uh, at, at Udo in Thailand. And... Um, I flew over a thousand hours of combat uh, in these three tours, and uh, then uh, in March of 1972, I shot down a MiG-21 uh, in aerial combat, and then in the uh, 11th of May 1972, I was shot down near Hanoi and spent uh, 11 months as a uh, as a POW uh, in the Hanoi Hilton. You move on beyond that time of your life to do something also quite incredible. In the 1980s, you return to flying what I imagine to be a little different type of balloon known as the Rosie O'Grady, and you make a very historic flight. This is what, the first manned attempt to cross the ocean? Uh, from No, the first States? solo flight across the Atlantic Ocean. I made a flight in 1984 from uh, Maine to Italy in, a, in an open gondola uh, solo. Uh, took three and a half days, and whereas all my other res- my programs in balloons was for research and for a good reason, my flight across the Atlantic Ocean was done just as an adventure. It had never been done before, and I wanted to do it. And uh, I had a wonderful team of people, and we had a lot of fun. And I, uh, I set uh, several world's records. It'll be a long time before they'll ever beat on that flight. Sounds exciting, but again, the key word here is solo. And how does one remain to do all the things on board the balloon? I mean, you rarely have a chance to sleep, I would imagine, on this type of a flight. No, you're right, Steve. As a matter of fact, in three and a half days, I only slept two and a half hours. That's amazing. Uh, I'd sleep ten minutes at a time um, because I was very busy. You know, I had to fly the balloon, communicate, navigate, uh, manage all the systems. I was a very busy uh, beaver on that flight. But I wanted to do it solo because it had already been done with a three-man crew, and I'm a fighter pilot, and I had confidence that I could do it, and by gum, I did do it. And you sure did, and we salute the wonderful uh, events and efforts of uh, your career, as we're talking with again, uh, United States Air Force retired Colonel Joseph Kittinger, Jr., about his uh, long career in not only aviation, but in the area of flying into the clouds and beyond via balloons and transitioning across the ocean solo. But finally, Colonel, in the time remaining, what bit of advice would you give young people today if they want a career, let's say, in the United States military? I know, imagining now what's going on in our country that we're called possibly to arms here because of the tragic events that are happening to our country by terrorists, but also for commercial pilots and for anybody that wants to go into a career like this, what do you recommend they do as a student to begin? Steve, I would recommend that they establish goals, that they work toward these goals, that they don't worry about peer pressure, that that they be themselves, and and, and not allow anybody to deter them or defer them from what they know is correct. Uh, There's a lot of adventure still out there in life. There's a lot of success that that the the young people can have, but it's up to them. Uh, There's no free lunches. There's no free anything. And what they get is what they put into it, and they just have to devote themselves to, to their future and, uh, and, and, and set goals and stick with them. Well, Colonel, your information here is very mind-stimulating uh, and very, very encouraging. And let me be the first, of course, to thank you for spending the time with me here on the Dr. Sky Show. Uh, Steve Cates reporting as we continue and conclude 
another exciting edition of our TeenTalkNetwork.com program today. Thanking you ahead of time, Colonel. We've been listening to a report here with United States Air Force retired Colonel Joseph W. Kittinger, Jr., on some most amazing events that have happened in his career. And I want to thank you, Colonel, for spending the time with us today. Thank you for having me, Steve. My pleasure. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.